Welcome to All In, the Sustainable Business Podcast. Three veterans of sustainability, David Grayson, Chris Coulter, and Mark Lee, take you behind the scenes of the most innovative and exciting aspects of business today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of All In Sustainable Business Podcast. My name is Chris Coulter, and I'm delighted to be here with my wonderful colleagues, David Grayson and Mark Lee. David, how are you? I'm really good, thank you. Excellent, good. And Mark, how about you? How are you doing? Doing pretty well, Chris. Thank you, and I hope you are as well. I am, thank you. It's springtime, and it's lovely weather here in Toronto, so I can't complain. As always, there's lots of stuff in the news on the sustainability agenda, which we wanted to get to and give our round the table thoughts on. One, not surprisingly, that dominates the conversation is climate change, as it should. And, and given the dire, again, IPCC reports last month, the latest assessment that we have a 50% chance of beating the 1.5 degree increase. Things are in trouble. And if we look at intensity of droughts in southwestern US and the crazy heat that's affecting hundreds of millions of people in India and Pakistan because of extreme weather. This is an always present crisis for us. I know, Mark, you at the Institute and at ERM have done some really interesting work in assessing some of the recent proposed disclosure laws out of the SEC in the US and wanted to know your thoughts on it. What are you seeing as you've examined what's been transpiring in some of climate disclosure? Yeah, Chris, I think you're so right that these are the headlines that we'd love to get away from, but we can't. And the oppressive heat in India and elsewhere, the fires in New Mexico right now, the recent studies, it just keeps reminding us of how pressing and increasingly so the climate crisis is. One of the things that I think is exciting in this moment is that there's this surge towards some standardization around climate-related disclosure. Not everybody gets excited about new regulations and standards. David, you do. Yeah, (laughs) it is a bit wonky. It's more than, but it's so, so important because we have a marketplace that just isn't served well by information about what companies and investors are doing in terms of climate measurement and analysis and performance. One of the things that's out there right now is a new SEC proposed rule on enhancement and standardization of climate-related disclosures for investors. But even better, this is not remotely happening in isolation. In so many countries around the world, similar regulation is moving forward in some form. Maybe most importantly at this same moment is that the ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board, has just set out climate-related disclosure requirements, and they have a comment period going on at the same time as a comment period being conducted by the SEC. In a blizzard of acronyms here, I apologize, FRAG, E-F-R-A-G, It's a very unfortunate acronym, really. It is, (laughs) but they've launched something very fortunate, which is a public consultation on their draft, exposure drafts, which go well beyond climate, but include climate as well. In these huge markets and from a leading standard setter in ISSB, we've got kind of new rules and it represents a hardening of the rules that companies and investors will need to play by in terms of addressing climate. And hardening the rules, people are worried, of course, what that might entail in full and how much it will cost, but but it's also going to bring some consistency and clarity to what we're trying to accomplish. I think it's essential for moving forward. If people are listening and they are a company or an investor and they're debating, participating in the comment periods, I would just say yes, 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 that all these things are still forming. The cement is not yet dry. There's a chance to influence them, but I also think they are inevitably happening. All these rules and standards are coming through in some form. It's going to shift the landscape. Good news, you know, they build on everything that has happened before them, especially you see constant references to the TCFD, 
to the work that SASB has done to the GRI. So we're building now new regulation and new and better standards on the best standards we've had to date. To address this climate crisis, one of the things we need is more and better information and comparable information. And this is all a huge step in the right direction. I think one of the first things we're going to need is a glossary just from this podcast, guys, because we've gone through a whole series of different acronyms there. And I'm not going to try and compete with that. I mean, I think from my side of the Atlantic, I would also draw attention to the European Union's Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, which the French presidency of the EU are pushing very hard to try and get resolved uh, before their presidency ends at the end of June. By contrast, in the country I know best, the UK, our Queen's speech in the last few days didn't include uh, proposals around having a UK equivalent. We hope it will be coming soon. I think it will be a matter of time, simply because it will not be possible to be too far out of line with those other major jurisdictions. So I do think the message for any chief finance officer, is you need to wrap your head around all these acronyms, even though it might give you a headache. And for any board, these are now material issues that you need to be cognizant of, you need to be aware of in relation to risk register, etc. It's going to shake a lot of companies out of complacency who have been trying to ignore this conversation for a while, which is a very positive thing. I was talking just before we came on this podcast with somebody whose career now is in conducting board effectiveness reviews. And he was telling me about one review he's just done where the board chair talks about the fact that they just had to get so massively up to speed on ESG slash sustainability issues in the last 12 months. And they felt that they had gotten from a real sort of behind the pack situation to getting much more into the conversation just in the space of 12 months because they recognized they had to. On that, and there's a polarization, of course, on all these issues. And we're seeing this, I think, broadly on the ESG agenda in some ways. But BlackRock had a big announcement this week that made some waves. They referenced that they will not be supporting as many climate resolutions as they have in the past because of both the precision or the specificity of some of those resolutions and because of the costliness of some of them in some ways for management. And it goes against their long-term fiduciary responsibility. And there's been lots of pushback and the emotive element. There's a new term I read today or yesterday an article in The Guardian talking about carbon bombs, a very visceral militaristic term for any new investment in a new oil and gas deposit. So a carbon bomb. So you've got that on one side. On the other side, you've got a very investor-led perspective with an analytical backing from BlackRock. And David, what are your thoughts on the BlackRock move? So I think the devil, as so often, is in the detail. And if you read the substance of the BlackRock statement, I don't think it's a major reverse. I don't think it's them suddenly saying, oh, forget all those Larry Fink letters of the last 10 years. We didn't really mean it. We're changing direction. I think what they are saying is that they're going to be more discriminating. They're saying we're going to look much more at the substance of each resolution. And in particular, they say we will not vote in favour of resolutions which are too extreme, which are also potentially getting into micromanagement. So I think we have to be really seeing what's the long term direction of travel here. And so I would be much more relaxed about this BlackRock announcement in the context of what is going on 
inevitably, if you get many, many more shareholder resolutions, which is what apparently this season of AGMs is seeing, particularly in the US because of some relaxation of some rules about the terms of being able to file resolutions at AGMs. But if you're getting many more, then inevitably some will be good and some won't be so good. The long-term sensible organizations are going to take prudent views about all of this. You sound extraordinarily reasonable, David. Now, Mark, let's bring you in. When David starts talking about long-term and sensible, and then I'm brought into the conversation, I know I need to be careful. I agree with what David said first. I think he's being very sensible. I also took real note that this statement came from BlackRock Investment Stewardship. And in the years that have recently gone by, investment stewardship organizations in these major institutional investors have been under huge pressure to disclose more about how and why they vote on different resolutions. And so I want to point out too, there's here this trend of transparency. This is in advance of the votes. They're sort of telling us what to expect. It lets other people prepare. It lets other people criticize, but we should watch and see how they actually vote and on which votes. And over the last few years, I've been really encouraged by the voting patterns we've seen from the major institutional investors, from pension funds and others on these big sustainability issues. I think we're heading in the right direction my assumption is BlackRock is still on that same improving course in climate terms, and that they're also going to be judicious and careful about how they vote, as they should be for all the reasons related to their fiduciary responsibilities. It's amazing. There's such a bellwether for this conversation. So any move they do has lots of scrutiny and excitement around. So that's excellent. Let's talk about the war in Ukraine, because it's also one of the big global issues that we're facing in crisis. And we know the geopolitics, I think, broadly, and lots of people have been talking about it. But David, what are your thoughts on the implications of the war in Ukraine on sustainable development and the the agenda overall? So two preliminary remarks. First off, the horrendous damage which the Putin aggression is causing in Ukraine in terms of the laying of landmines indiscriminately, in terms of the devastation that is being caused, which is going to have really negative impacts in terms of pollution, in terms of damage to soil and to future agriculture opportunities, number one. I think this is, apart from a geopolitical strategic crisis, we're seeing war crimes. I think this is also a massive sustainability crisis It takes the world's attention away. We were talking a few moments ago about both the latest IPCC report and the report in the last few days from the World Meteorological Office and the British Met Office. All of those things have had relatively little attention because, quite rightly, everyone is really so focused at the moment on the horrendous scenes that we're seeing from the Ukraine. The other thing I think about the war in Ukraine is that it shows definitively that businesses cannot be absent from the major political debates. Doing business in the 2020s is an inherently political act, and that cannot be escaped. And actually, I've been rather encouraged by the way in which so many businesses have been thinking about what does this mean for us? Do we carry on trading inside Russia? Do we pull out of Russia? You know, I think real acts of leadership by BP, for instance, in taking a $25 billion hit on their bottom line in pulling out. But I think you know, we've also seen other businesses saying, We are going to be very public in the way that Brad Smith, the head of Microsoft, four days after the Russian invasion, 
was talking about the way in which Microsoft was collaborating with the Ukrainian authorities, the EU and the Biden administration on identifying some of the latest malware that was coming from Russia and helping the Ukrainians and others to stop it. And I think the fact that he chose in a very, very public way to talk about that and to say, you know, we are putting our resources at the disposal of trying to fight this cyber warfare. Clearly, lots of businesses are having to make decisions. Do they support their young Russian employees inside Russia who want to get out and obviously avoid potential conscription? What are the kind of issues involved in whether you carry on trading and so on? You have, I think, to take a stance on these kind of questions. Mark, what's your, what's your sense of the war in Ukraine on the sustainability agenda? What's the impact of it? Yeah, David's description of the broad circumstance is so good, and but there are a couple of sustainability notes I'd like to hit, and we're just starting to understand them and that the ripple effects are going to be persistent, and that's part of the sustainability story. In recent days, we've seen stories that there are 25 million tons of grain stuck in the Ukraine that would normally be exported. And there are a variety of countries in Africa and elsewhere for whom the Ukraine is their only source of grain. They will hopefully find other supply somehow, and work is being done to try to get those 25 million tons out of Ukraine and into world markets anyways. But one of the big impacts that will be widespread of the war is hunger, and it will push people who are on the margin deeper beyond that margin And we know there's so many knock-on effects that relate to nutrition in terms of educational capacity, everything else. This will go far, far beyond just Ukraine's borders. And the other side of it is energy. And this is obviously throwing the question of Europe in particular and its energy relationship with Russia up in the air. But it shows us again how global and sort of vulnerable the fossil fuel industry is. I think Russian capacity is about 10 million barrels of oil per day equivalent. And we live in a world where we use little less than 100 million barrels a day. And so the proportion is massive. And you see the ripple effects very local and very loud here in the US and elsewhere, where the president is releasing a million barrels a day equivalent from the strategic reserve. It obviously does not make up the shortfall locally or globally. It begs a million forward questions about pipelines, about supply, about where it comes from, and about what type of energy we are reliant on, as well as who is supplying it to us. I think some of this disruption in climate terms, to go back to our earlier part of our conversation, will probably be positive. There'll be some acceleration of shift, but it's also leading to short-term questions about how much coal to use which other dirtier sources to use to provide a stopgap if Russian supplies of oil and natural gas are cut off. So hard and so many more issues than just those two. And Chris, your family comes from the Ukraine. You've written incredibly movingly about your grandparents and how they met in World War II. And then your family moved or your ancestors moved to Toronto. You're getting practically involved in trying to raise awareness. Yes, it's an exciting idea that came from a conversation with CSR Ukraine and CSR Europe, where a woman named Marina, who runs CSR Ukraine for many years, I met her years ago in the CSR Europe venue, she asked just very practically, what can we do to do something for Ukraine? My mother's side of the family is Ukrainian, and I lived in Kiev for half a year in 1996 doing polling for NATO on views of joining NATO or not. So plus a change. But what we thought we would do, and this, this is we're very exciting, it's amazing how I think the goodwill and the global sustainability community 
can come together quickly. So we just thought that this simple idea of what can we do? Well, what do we do? We believe in the sustainability agenda and how fast moving it is. So we need more dialogue and engagement around it. And let's do a 24-hour webathon. We're kind of cheekily calling it what the heck is going on a thon to put a little marker in the sand as to where are we on the agenda? What's working? What isn't? How do we get back on track if we need to? How do we achieve the SDGs? And then decentralize it. So we have all kinds of partners across the world who are going to take an hour and do a panel around it. All of this will be with an intention of bringing tens of thousands of people into a conversation to do some work to support civil society on the ground in Ukraine. So we're calling it Sustainability for Ukraine, the global sustainability community's opportunity to engage and listen and then donate funds to the people on the ground doing social environmental work around sustainability. Our compatriots and colleagues in the sustainability community in Ukraine who've been naturally devastated by this horrific war, who will need to rebuild and look forward in the future. So more details on that to come, but we're very excited about it. Let's talk a little bit about another event that transpired. Three months ago, we launched our book, The Sustainable Business Handbook. We have had time to talk to people who have read it, and there's more than one person on the planet that's read it, and to get feedback and, and even had a chance to speak about it to other people and audiences. And I'd love to get your perspectives, Mark, first, and then David, on what are you reflecting upon the reaction to the book so far and our intention of trying to make a contribution to accelerate sustainability for many businesses? Yeah, just one maybe quick anecdote. I think one of the purposes of writing the book and creating it as a handbook in which each chapter could stand alone as a kind of educational and action tool to move forward a sustainability topic inside a corporation. I had a conversation just yesterday with one of the senior finance people inside ERM, my parent organization. He had bought the book, he's read the book, and he used it to prepare a speech for fellow CFOs and finance leaders at an industry event. And that's the kind of spreading of this beyond sustainability teams and companies that we want to see. And his response was, it was practical. It was applicable. I could pick it up. It had what I needed. I could absorb it quickly. I could meaningfully share it with my finance peers. And I was like, hooray. You know, if that is happening in other places, then that's exactly what's supposed to happen with, with the handbook and, and, the, and its nature. Did he reference our jargon buster as a key asset to try and get through the acronym SOUP? I don't know that he did, but you have now, Chris. <laughs> David, what's your sense of the reaction to the book so far? I was doing a session back in the northeast of England where I lived for 13 years and set up one of the very first of the, the local enterprise and local development agencies, Project Northeast, as a social enterprise back in 1980. And I'm pleased to say it's still going strong 42 years later. We were doing a session in one of the urban farms in the Northeast with a group of startup businesses, some small businesses from the Northeast of England, as well as some MBA students from several of the business schools in the region. I was doing an explanation of the book and some of the sections. And it was really nice having a couple of the small business owner managers saying, we really are going to get this book. We want to really understand because this is the way that we want to run our businesses really from the get-go. I'm incredibly excited by the number of smaller businesses who are saying sustainability has to be at the heart of the way we run our business. Although the Sustainable Business Handbook isn't written specifically for small businesses, I do hope that a lot of the chapters, as Mark says, can be highly relevant to those small business owners as well. 
and I've had some similar feedback on the practicality and the, the utility of this. And I think it goes back to when Sue Gerard in our book launch referenced this, this fact of demystifying or taking the intimidation factor away from sustainability so more people can jump into it. When we break it down, it's not that complicated, but there are lots of acronyms. And there's lots of jargon that can intimidate. So I think that's been a very pleasant surprise that it seems to do that work. Okay, without further ado, let's go to the interview that I had the pleasure of having with Tim Favory, who is the Vice President of Sustainability and Shared Value at Maple Leaf Foods. He's a dear friend and one of the most remarkable, both practical and very sophisticated practitioners I've known for many years. And I think you'll enjoy the conversation with him. Well, Tim Favory, VP of Sustainability and Shared Value from Maple Leaf Foods, welcome. Thank you, Chris. Tell us a little about Maple Leaf Foods, because some of the listeners might not know the company who aren't in Canada. What is Maple Leaf Foods and what's the sustainability journey? We are one of Canada's largest food companies, particularly focused on protein, both animal protein and plant protein. We are vertically integrated on the pork side of our business, one of the largest pork producers in Canada, and one of the largest poultry processors as well, with about $4 billion a year in revenue and exporting to the United States and around the world, particularly Asia. Also heavily invested in the plant protein business with operations in the United States and manufacturing in some of our plants in Canada. To go back way back, the company Maple Leaf Foods is over 100 years old and was acquired by Michael McCain and his family back in the 90s. So still have him at the helm for at least another year. The journey really started with Maple Leaf Foods prior to me joining back in 2015. But the company started to focus on sustainability, probably where most food companies in Canada start to look at it in kind of the mid part of the first decade of the 2000s. And then the company was hit with the crisis the 2008 listeriosis crisis. 23 Canadians died consuming maple leaf products. And that's when Michael McCain set out to fix the business and about a decade of transformation um, that was undertaken. Over a billion dollars invested in Canada to modernize and improve and consolidate the animal protein, the meat protein side of the business. Incredible investments in food safety to make the company world-class. And in and around 2014, once that transformation was inherently almost complete, the last part of that was to look more broadly and figure out how the company could grow after fixing the company over the last 10 years. Where's the path forward? And all analysis and strategy work that the company did pointed towards protein. Protein, full stop. Because the company at that time was a very diverse company. Canada bred a pasta business, a rendering business, a feed grain business. And so... The divestment of all those non-proceed assets happened. And so the company was back to strictly being an animal protein company. And then starting in 2016, the company started to grow the protein space by acquiring plant protein companies, particularly Light Life Foods and Field Rose Grain Meat Company in the US, which put us instantly on the map as one of North America's largest protein companies. That was also done under a strategic lens around being a purposeful company. So in around 2016, we started working on our overall purpose to raise the good in food. That's the purpose to raise the good in food. Raise the good in food. Five really powerful words for our organization. Raise is action-oriented to us. It means to lift, to elevate, to raise the bar, to raise animals, good food, healthy food, sustainably sourced food, 
nutritious, culturally appropriate food. You know, we can go on and on and on about what that and unpack what that means, but very, very important words to us. But the vision, I think, is where it comes to heart. And the vision for our purpose is to be the most sustainable protein company on earth. I don't know of very many companies that are purposeful and those that are have a purpose that's based on sustainability, right? Yeah. And I think that that vision is the catalytic piece of it, right? And I think you're right. The purpose is evocative and it's tight, which is rare. <laughs> and, and I know, you know, in the company, it's a vibrant living thing, but I do think that the vision of being the most sustainable protein company on the planet, it's not just Canada, it's the planet. So it's super ambitious, right? How do those things work together? These two things. So I think what's anchored that vision is that it is a guiding light. It's our North star. It's something that we will always be working towards. Our CEO loves to use the phrase, this is about progress, not perfection at any one time. Anything that we're working on today might not even be considered sustainable in five to 10 years. Like We all know how fast things are changing right across various different industry sectors. We anchor that vision through an overall business strategy that's, that's based on shared value and a blueprint that was created that sets out six core business strategies to the company that really, by their nature, embed sustainability into the organization. You know, you've been around for, like me, you know, 25 years doing sustainability. Did you just call me old? No, I didn't. <laughs> because then I would have to call myself old. Um, organizations strive to embed sustainability across the company. Well, you can go piece by piece, department by department, issue by issue, or you can start right with a social purpose and a business strategy that inherently does that for you. So that's the really exciting thing that I, I think that I've been a part of is that journey towards purpose, creating the purpose and starting to roll out our blueprint over the last five years or so, and now seeing some really good traction on it. I think it's an exciting story. And I guess on the back of that crisis, that terrible listeriosis crisis you guys went through, that was catalytic in driving the company in a different direction. And in the Sustainable Business Handbook, the book that David, Mark, and I wrote, we begin with purpose, and purpose is a piece of the puzzle. And not all companies that are even engaged in sustainability have a purpose. How do you use, as the head of sustainability, how do you use purpose to drive the agenda inside or outside the organization? Inside the organization, we have a very, very strong corporate culture. And I think that comes from, obviously, having the same CEO for 27 years. We haven't had the turn and the change of a new CEO coming in every 24 months with a new strategy and senior leadership team, right? Most of our senior leadership team have active tenure of decades within the company. So that corporate culture is set. So when you can collectively develop your purpose and set it with that cultural lens, we get uptake right across the board through the company. I'm not saying it's perfect in every way, shape, or form, but it works for our organization. And as well as a very process and metrics-driven company, we've created priorities with all with senior leadership team accountability and KPIs that we report right up to our COO and our CEO. That's the way our culture is. And so if you don't align your sustainability program to your culture, you're not going to be successful. You referenced the business pillars. 
I think you like to get your hands dirty. I know inside the business and you know the business well, and you're deep into different parts of the operations. How do you build a business case on an ongoing basis around sustainability? Do you need to? Is that an important part of how you keep momentum going? Different industries would respond in different ways. As a vertically integrated company, particularly in agriculture, there's a lot of puts and takes and costs that are beyond our control, like commodity prices, transportation, drought in the prairies. I think we're all faced with those kind of challenges. But as well, many of our sustainability initiatives, because our program is all-encompassing and broad, are hard to measure with respect to pure direct financial value to drive revenue, let's say. So animal welfare, the investments that we've made to hold the leadership position that we have in our animal care program don't have a return on investment. (laughs) Therefore, the animals, it's hard to measure if animals are healthier, then we perhaps may be able to get them more of them to market quicker. That, That has a business case attached to it. But the significant capital projects that we've had to make to transform a very non-modern animal production infrastructure, gestation crates, for example, there's no return on investment on that. That was decisions that were made about, you often hear this, well, that was just the right thing to do back in 2007. Commit to that and make it happen over time, right? And now we benefit from having all the sows under our care in open housing. Maybe now opportunities may be to strategically capitalize on that program moving forward. Year to year over the last decade, there was no business case for that. Like that's one example where leadership at companies have to look deep and and actually say what's the right thing to do. Investments in climate as well. The latest, greatest technology really doesn't have an ROI tied to it right now, or there is no ROI because it's so out there and innovative. But there's so many things that can be done, low-hanging fruit across manufacturing operations that continually drive cost savings and eliminate waste that drive value back to the company. As well, organizations that don't have the ability to effectively monetize a price on carbon internally in their organizations, I think are a little behind. So with our program, we've created an internal price on carbon. All capital projects are measured through a carbon calculator against that internal price. And if a capital project doesn't have an ROI, but will reduce greenhouse gas emissions by a significant amount, tie that to the internal price of carbon, and then the cost avoidance of us going out and maintaining an offset for them to meet those emissions, can go right against the ROI. And we've seen many, many times that sometimes projects that are hovering on that tightrope of will it return or will it not, when that carbon price is activated, that internal price and calculator, it goes up well into the positive return on investment. I think that's a fantastic mechanism and really allows the enterprise to move in different directions than a traditional one, which is great in line with your values and your vision. Even the animal welfare investments you made historically, it must also have an impact on culture internally, like doing the right thing makes it real, it reinforces. I'm sure you've got more engaged employees, more talent comes in the belief. Absolutely, absolutely. And particularly how high animal welfare practices are obviously much better for the animal, but better for the employees working with those animals. From their job satisfaction, they're working with animals because they love animals. And in the old systems, 
And they weren't working with the animals. They were working around the animals because they were all in crates, right? And now that they are able to walk among the animals and actually interact with the animals, it's really, really been a lift for them. How was the plant-based growth of the protein portfolio? I mean, how did that come about? Was it just as a way to expand and diversify? Was it sustainability inspired as well? What was the story there? Well, as you probably know, that classic Venn diagram for shared value is be a profitable competitive company by focusing your business on addressing social and environmental needs. Part of the way to address social and environmental needs for particularly a food company is to reconfigure your products and your product lines towards social and environmental impact and performance, but as well enter into new markets as well. So when we look at what was happening with protein and knowing that with increasing global populations, the world will be very, very hungry for protein, but as well that animal agriculture and the whole food system in general, regardless of its plant or animal protein, is a really big protagonist in a lot of these issues, whether it's water or climate or animal welfare, like we we're talking about, or health and nutrition or antibiotic usage, food is at that nexus. With respect to what we wanted to do moving forward, was where are the opportunities and what new markets are there to enter in and where is the consumer going? And rightly so, you know, pre-COVID pandemic, categories in alternative protein and plant protein were growing by 40, 50% a year. And we benefited from that. Now, I think there's been a big reset with respect to consumer demand and growth of the categories, but still very healthy growth projections of 15 to 20%, which is bigger than most food categories, right? So we're still really excited about it. But what it does is it diversifies our product line. It's aligned with our purpose, raising the good in food, aligned with our vision. Plant protein is less environmentally impactful to produce than animal protein. It shores up a very strong portfolio of brands that the company already has. I don't want to be too much of a sycophant for Maple Leaf Foods, but I think the company is one of those rare leading companies that, is, as you've referenced, has had ambitions ahead of ROI, have kind of moved the agenda, and I think shifted best practice in the industry where you operate at least, but also beyond, I'm sure. The one thing that I also think that's really what you did early, very early comparatively, is get to carbon neutrality and commit to carbon neutrality. Can you talk about where that idea came from and how the company is able to move much more quickly than even others that have been viewed as leaders for many years? For me personally, because I was involved in that process, it really comes back down to uh, the culture of the company. So when we were rolling out our purpose, we did a number of focus groups. And we talked with employees right down from the line, right up to our CFO and, and other members of our senior leadership team. And we shared our purpose statement and our vision right across the board and gathered all the feedback. And what we heard in particular around our vision to be the most sustainable protein company on earth was a very common piece of feedback around the environment and climate. As we headed into those workshops, the organization knew that we had already set back in 2014 the boldest environmental goals for our sector, 50% environmental footprint reduction by 2025. But when we were messaging and asking for feedback on our overall vision, it was made pretty clear by employees up and down across the organization. And it went something like this. It went, well, if we want to have this vision to be the most sustainable protein company on earth, how come our environmental goals were only set at 50%? 
doesn't make a lot of sense. And once all that feedback was consolidated, you know, there was agreement that, yes, they're right. We have to be more ambitious on the environmental front. And so what are we going to do? Enter in science-based target setting and whole carbon management strategy that was about a 18 to 24 month journey within the journey. And in 2019, yes, we became one of three Canadian companies to set science-based targets to our knowledge, the first major carbon neutral food company on the planet. So that's- This is, this is how it's supposed to work. A purpose, engaging people, the, the, I guess know, so. the employees <laughs> getting it and then pushing back and saying, well, if that's the case, then how yeah. do we be consistent kind of a nice, with this? A nice balance from top down and bottom up, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's and what's the value of being carbon neutral, I guess, what, two years now or committing to that? Like, what's the difference we, before and uh, after? One of our strategic priorities is to be a leader in sustainability, in all aspects of sustainability. We've talked with many organizations in the not-for-profit sector and NGO space right up through to our peers and other global companies through the World Business Council, et cetera, and all say that we are in that leadership space when it comes to climate. Carbon neutral is very different than this new lexicon that has emerged over the last couple of years called net zero, a vital intermediary step towards a long-term 2050 goal. And for a food company to do it, not only embracing a neutrality of scope one and two, but a good portion of our scope three emissions is really best practice. I know you're cooking on other things. This is a restless organization that's always driving stuff forward. <laughs> what, what are you excited about now? What kind of stuff are you doing that you think is interesting and in the same envelope of yeah, pushing the envelope? It would be a mess if we didn't talk about the big elephant in the room for most companies, and that's our scope three emissions footprint. For any food company, it's usually well over 80%, and that's the same for us. We have done a deep dive on our scope three inventory, and almost a third comes from elements that we have very little visibility to deep in the supply chain around sourcing grains that we convert into feed for our animals. The good thing about that is that we only source from Canada and a small portion of the United States. We don't have that global supply chain like other big CPG companies might have that would have to deal with many different regions around the world. The whole notion of decarbonization in your supply chain, I think is going to be super important and it will be super important. But what is there to do? Most organizations don't know where to start. We were fortunate in sitting on a couple of roundtables with another leading Canadian organization, Nutrien, which is one of the world's largest fertilizer producers out in Western Canada, based in Saskatchewan. They sit in the supply chain upstream of grain farmers. We, as a buyer of grains, sit downstream. Two very distinct categories of scope three emissions accounting. And when two companies can come together and create an intervention that helps Canadian farmers adopt more sustainable agriculture practices, I'm going to use the buzzword regenerative, generative agriculture. Collaborative as well. Collaborative, <laughs> that's right. Really, really interesting things can happen. We are co-investing in supporting uh, grain farmers in Western Canada to adopt nutrient management programs and no-till practices and cover cropping, et cetera, which is driving more carbon into the soil and reducing input costs for farmers and allowing farmers to, quote unquote, monetize the carbon that they can influence on their farm. That is a nature-based solution. 
right? Leveraging plants and leveraging what plants do best. And that's take carbon out of the atmosphere and turn it into food for themselves and carbon for the soil. And scaling that kind of approach, I think really, really excites us as a company. It really, really excites me because it's so leading and innovative. So much so that groups like the Greenhouse Gas Protocol and WWF and the Science-Based Target Initiative are watching many of these kinds of projects globally to get input into the latest standards, right? Nature-based solutions, perfect. Carbon sequestration and removal, exactly what we need to work on. The next new term that I think everyone's going to be rallying around is this whole notion of carbon insetting, insetting reductions and emissions within your supply chain moving carbon offsets to become carbon insets and achieving those scope three emissions reductions that we all need to get at. How hard is this? This is, I think, one of the challenges that we see. This pressure, the science is clear. We've got to become net zero collectively, according to Paris targets by 2050, and people are understanding agreeing it. In that collaboration with Nutrient, for example, and all of the science related to it, like how much effort is this to, to get to that level of specificity? There's a lot of effort, and thank goodness that we've developed a partnership with someone with boots on the ground because Nutrien has agronomists that works with farmers that they supply fertilizer to. They know them, they engage with them. And as a buyer and co-investor in this program, we can help educate all actors within that supply chain on this kind of initiative and what it means. I also feel that farmers en masse want to be part of the solution to climate and not pegged as part of the problem. They're entrepreneurial by nature. Their farm is their livelihood that they want to as well pass down to future generations. And we've seen fantastic uptake with the farmers that we engage with to come into the program because as well, it allows them to increase revenue that they can make through simple adjustments that don't cost them a lot of money. And whether you're a large grain farmer in Western Canada or even a small holder farmer in the developing world, I think the mentality and the entrepreneurship of farmers is very similar. But scale is going to play a big, big part of this, right? That, that inclusivity of everyone, farmers being a critical node, but maybe left out of the conversation for a little bit, it feels like that's what the just transition really is about, right? Like to make sure everyone can contribute, that they're part of it, that their challenges and barriers to change are also understood and supported and facilitated. And that's, that's right. the hard work, I think, too. Absolutely. Making it work, getting credit for it is all top of mind how are supply chain actors going to come together and effectively share the emissions reductions equally or proportionally within their supply chain with no accounting standard to do it. And I think that's going to be a big next step by the GHG protocols that are coming out and they need to be done very carefully and informed by data and science but, and sound accounting principles. But I think that's going to be the next big jump for companies is getting that handle on their scope three emissions. So you've established that we're both old. Thank you. Before Maple Leaf, you ran sustainability at Tim Hortons, another iconic Canadian brand. Um, and before that, you were a consultant in the sustainability space in Deloitte. So, so you've, you've been around for a while, this stuff. Do you step back and reflect where we are in that 25 years of doing this work and how things are? Do you see ESG in a synonymous way to sustainability or something different? And are there new challenges that we need to focus on? Like, look, how, how do you see the agenda unfolding? Yeah, I guess when I think back, we were always trying to convince C-suite members of clients or our own companies to buy into what sustainability might have meant to individual organizations. 
It was hard too because sustainability wasn't as commonplace 20 years ago, 10 years ago as it is now. And the understanding of what it meant is very different. I treat ESG, this term ESG and sustainability very differently. I think ESG is very investor related. It's very disclosure related. A sustainability strategy is around performing, setting policy, setting strategy to allow your company to perform and disclose in in any of the ESG type frameworks or programs that are out there. Now it's come to a point where if you're not disclosing, if you don't have a sustainability strategy, you're a laggard. Whereas 15 years ago, if you just didn't have a sustainability report, you were a laggard. So it's really evolved. Fortunately, we've got that, but we also have a purpose, which is going to drive that forward on a day-to-day, month-to-month, period-to-period, year-to-year basis. What's next for purpose? I don't know. But I think those companies that have embraced it and are managing in that way strategically are going to be better set up for what's coming next. We know it's something about regeneration, fixing societal issues instead of doing no harm, continuing to invest long-term and not getting hung up on the short-termism of just the reporting. It has to be impactful and meaningful, measurable. That's interesting because we're still working on how to measure social impact and other things. That was the same 20 years ago. <laughs> right. It's a, it's a tough nut to crack for sure. It's very uh, tough. But I like your distinction with VSG. I, mean, I agree. I think it's disclosure oriented. It's investor led or driven, which are great things. And it brings all kinds of new companies into the conversation because their investors are asking. So therefore they respond. It's kind of as a compliance orientation to it, which I think in some ways is good because it's raising boats, but it's missing some essence, right? Some of the magic that sustainability provides. And I always think of like ESG being the floor good floor, it should be a wide floor, but the ceiling should be ever growing higher and higher up. And it feels like beyond business case, beyond ROIs, that Maple Leaf, I think, has been doing consistently for 15 years or so. That's the thing that we need more of as well to pull everyone along. That's right. And as more small to medium enterprises and smaller organizations get involved, that's going to make supply chain collaboration easier because we'll all be lifted to a point where developing those partnerships can be much more efficient. Just to end on that, then on the supply chain, are you engaging suppliers now? To what degree do you think that would change in the future? I mean, how do we at scale, I guess, get our suppliers into this conversation and performing differently over time? Yeah, we've started a supplier engagement strategy that is focused on a number of different things. Because of what we stand for, Not only do we need to engage suppliers on climate, we have to engage them on food safety and health and safety and quality and a whole bunch of different factors, animal welfare, et cetera, that is very important to us that we need to measure. We're currently trying to find the right balance with respect to approaching our key suppliers with a broad set of criteria for them to perform against, because we know they're going to be able to, and as well, they're long-term suppliers of ours that we know are willing to partner in and improve. That's also where a lot of the impact is for us on climate and other material issues. We've got lots of suppliers for sure, but when we look at our scope three emissions, we want to focus on where we're going to have the most impact. So you're going to see more work from us on the agriculture side, on the packaging side, on the logistics side, where the big impacts are for our value chain. Thank you so much, Tim. Really appreciate it. Thank you for all your support over the years, 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the All In Podcast. If so, don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss any future episodes. And why not also give us a five-star review on iTunes? It helps others to find us, which helps spread the message.